Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Great to see everyone leading up to Rosh Hashanah in just a few days. What a great way to take in Elul and take in this powerful month and week uh, with a little bit of Torah learning, a little bit of Torah learning, learning that leads to action as always, as always. Here we're at debate number 18, pro-choice versus pro-life. Ah, okay, let's start with a poll. Let's see where our leanings are in this room. Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Number one, I am staunchly pro-life. There is no right to choose when a life is at stake. Number two, I believe the rights of the baby in a womb are the priority, but there are some very limited tragic cases where I'd support abortion. Number three, I believe in the sanctity of the fetus, but fetus life, but support abortion in many cases. Number four, I'm staunchly pro-choice. It's about a woman's right to choose. Okay, friends, cast your vote here. Cast your vote. Give you a few moments. Okay, let's see our results. Okay, very interesting. Zero percent here, staunchly pro-life. Zero percent here, one step from there. 43% believe in the sanctity of the fetus, but support abortion in many cases. And 57% are staunchly pro-choice about a woman's right to choose. Okay, good. So let's start with a little trigger alert because this is um, like many topics, but perhaps in particular can be a triggering topic since I'm sure many people here have had um, abortions or use birth control in one form or another. Those are obviously different matters, but connected in some ways here. Um, or someone in your family, your daughter or um, your son's girlfriend or spouse or a whole range of possibilities as to our relationship to this. Um, and my wife works, my wife Shoshana works in women's health and she's always telling me stories about um, underserved women and kind of the dilemmas they bring. Just in, the, in recent days, there's a case of a 19-year-old young woman and her boyfriend who came into her office and wanted to have an abortion and then looked at the ultrasound and after the ultrasound said, nope, we want to we wanna keep the child. On, on the other hand, just in just a few days, last few days, there was a single mother 
who came in who already has three children and very early in her pregnancy um, and knows that, that this child would have nothing. She would have nothing to give this child. She works full time, wouldn't even get maternity leave from her work, um, is already totally consumed as a single mother with her three young children and just knows her limitations and is absolutely certain that abortion is her path. And so there are many different um, types of scenarios that are constantly coming into her work. And as a rabbi, of course, I get calls around these types of issues as well. So friends, um, we're going to learn the sources here. I'll give you a, a little sneak preview into my own view, which aligns with most of our debates, which is that Judaism is far more complex to fit into one ideological box. Judaism is not um, uh, a perfect fit with a pro-life position as many conservative Jews want to suggest it is, lowercase c, conservative. And it does not perfectly fit into a pro-choice position as many liberal Jews uh, want to suggest. That doesn't mean a good Jew can't be pro-choice or pro-life. It just means that Judaism has a rich tradition of thousands of years old, doesn't fit perfectly into either box. And we will explore some of the sources that bring the nuance to life here. Okay. So try as we might to resolve the polarizing issue of abortion to everyone's satisfaction, whatever conclusion we reach will leave virtually no one happy. We can't do any better than to see if we can find an approach that at least many people can see as consistent with their own way of thinking. The issue is extremely complex, personal, and perhaps even painful. The goal here is also not meant to pass judgment on anyone's leaning regarding a very volatile political issue in American society. Rather, I would like to take the effort to launch a serious conversation about abortion rights in America. Rarely does the Torah merely affirm one side of a contemporary issue that is debated not only as a matter of public policy, but also frequently as a partisan question. While there may be a dominant leaning, there are centuries of diverse Jewish positions that need to be considered when trying to articulate a Jewish approach to a debate that plays out in the clash among diverse sets of values and between opposing parties challenging each other in the American judicial system. So in the case of abortion, our subject at hand, Jewish law, which is the source of so much contemporary Jewish perspective, leans toward the modern pro-choice position, but also provides many powerful arguments for the pro-life perspective as well. I've used the terms that each side uses for itself for fair balance. The conversation of course begins in the Torah. If one kills a fetus, they are not charged with murder. Rather, feticide is considered an act remitable by money damages. As you see here in Exodus, the conversation begins here. It is a monetary damage. So what's the case? A, um, a man punches, I, I mean, not a man, a woman, anybody. Somebody punches a pregnant woman in the stomach and um, she loses the fetus. Um, was that an act of murder? The Torah says, no. If it was an act of murder, then obviously the fetus is alive. If it's a monetary crime, then it was a crime. Well, obviously the punching, you know, her own stress, her own damages is, is another calculation, of course, of harm. 
Um, but the loss of the child in its own category is a monetary damage. Rather, excuse me, yet because the fact that a fetus is not granted the same legal value as a living child does not mean that the fetus lacks weighty significance. In the first 40 days following conception, the fetus is considered by the Talmudic sages to merely be water as the, as the thigh of its mother, it says in the Talmud and Yavamot and Bavakama, right? So the first 40 days, the fetus has a very unique status. It's a part of the mother. It's like water, right? That's basically, there is no soul within that fetus yet. It is merely a part of the mother. After 40 days, however, the fetus is described as a fully potential life, which becomes an actual life only upon birth. At birth, of course, there's a full status change. A baby who has emerged, emerged a second ago born, who has come out, um, is equal to someone who's 90 years old. That's a human being. A child one day old inherits and transmits. He who kills him is guilty of murder, and he counts to his father, to his mother, and to all his relatives as a fully grown person. It says in the Talmud of Nida. Okay, so once again, first 40 days, it's like water. 40 days until, uh, uh, sorry, conception to 40 days, like water. 40 days until birth, a potential life. Once the child is out, and of course there'll be a, a debate around what does it mean the child is out? What part of the baby? If the foot is out, if the head is out, what part is out to make it a life? Then it's a, then it's a person. Halakhic authorities have declared that many abortions are forbidden by Jewish law while disagreeing on the stage of pregnancy at which the procedure becomes forbidden. The value of potential life is so cherished that even the spilling of semen uh, on the Talmudic level, based on the Talmud, on, on the Bible, was considered forbidden for men. Um, uh, okay, lots more to say there. Even that rule, though, might mean less than it appears to on the question of the need to protect potential life. Considerable, considerable rabbinic authority supports the idea that sex has important positive non-procreative purposes, right? So obviously, um, when it comes to anything um, that's in this marital consensual relationship is a different biblical and Talmudic category. A fetus is viewed as a holy gift, a precious potential for life. Some Jewish legal authorities even view a fetus as life although not a full life of equal value to a human post-birth. So it's no surprise, friends, that given the different ways to view the distinctions between potential life and actualized life, that there are various Jewish approaches as to when and in which situations an abortion can be committed. Can be permitted, excuse me. The primary concern that Jewish law has with pro-life thinking is the way in which proponents often equate the value of the mother's life with the value of the fetus's life. The Catholic pro-life position that, that typically uh, argues that life starts at conception is generally viewed as completely foreign to Jewish thought. Jewish law is unequivocal that saving the mother's life trumps that of the fetus. It says here in Babylonian Talmud of Ohalot, if a woman is in hard travail, one cuts up the child in her womb 
right, as an abortion would be done in those days, and bring, or done in an alleyway if you don't have access, right? One cuts off the child in her womb and brings it forth member by member because her life comes before that of the child. But if the greater part has proceeded forth, one may not touch it, for one may not set aside one's person's life for that of another. Okay, so once again, um, the head of the baby, the, the majority of the baby has emerged from the, from the mother. You cannot choose the mother over that baby. That baby is a human being. But while that fetus is still in, in, inside of her, um, any, in any way that that fetus poses a threat to the mother's life, the mother hands down, unequivocally, takes moral and halakhic priority, and you should do anything to kill, kill, it might be the wrong word, to, um, to remove, to remove that fetus from her, because it is halakhically considered a rodef. A rodef is a violent pursuer. Just as a violent pursuer who knocks on, not knocks on your door, breaks down your door, you would have the right to, uh, to kill in self-defense the person who is breaking into your home violently. So too, the fetus has the same status as a rodef, a violent pursuer, and we must defend the woman from that rodef and cut it up, so to speak. I know this is very intense language, so I hope this isn't too triggering for some, for some folks here. The Talmud comments further on this idea over here in the Talmud of Sanhedrin. Rav Huna states, a minor who is pursuing another, a minor who is pursuing another to kill him may be killed. Thus he rules that a pursuer does not need warning that he is committing a crime, and it makes no difference whether the person is an adult or a child. Rav Chizda asked Rav Huna, if the fetus sticks out its head, one does not touch it since one does not substitute one life for another. Why? Is it not a pursuer? That case is different since from heaven it is pursuing her. Okay, so here they're saying, um, th th this is very interesting, that if, once again, if the fetus is still inside the mother, that it is a rodef that we can attack. Um, how, if the fetus has uh, emerged out enough, um, even though it's now posing a risk to the mother, it is, it, is a, it, is, um, it is a life and not viewed as a foreign, not viewed as a foreign threat in the same way. Okay, Maimonides codifies this rule one way and Rashi another. Maimonides writes, it is a negative commandment, mitzvah lotase, not to have mercy on a pursuer. Thus the sages decree that a fetus that is difficult to be born may be cut out of its mother's stomach, whether by poison or by hand, since it is like a pursuer of the mother to kill her. If the fetus sticks out its head, you may not touch it, since one cannot substitute one life for another, and this is the way of the world. Okay, Maimonides is teaching here that a fetus is indeed a person, and abortion is murder, and it is indeed only permitted to save the life of the mother. So once again, everyone is affirming to save the life of a mother, and yet, at that late stage, if it was not to save the mother, then it would be deemed akin to murder in a sense, he argues. Rashi completely disagrees. While commenting on the Talmud above, he explains the rule this way. It sticks out its head. The Talmud is speaking about a woman who is having difficulty giving birth and is in danger um, in the childbirth. The beginning section recounts that the midwife should stick in her hand, cut and remove the fetus limb by limb, 
since all the time that the fetus has not entered the air of the world, it is not alive, not alive, and may be killed to save the life of the mother. But once its head is out, one cannot touch it to kill it since it is already born and one may not choose one life over another. So Maimonides says you can kill it for the sake of the mother, but it is a, like, it is a life. Rashi says you can kill it also, but it is not a life. Most commentaries adopt Rashi's view and a minority accepts Maimonides. So abortion to save the life of the mother is always permitted and the life of the mother is more precious than the life of the fetus. On the other hand, abortion for reasons less than the physical or mental health of the mother, mental health is a loaded idea here, is not at all favored by the Jewish tradition in its traditional sense and considered murder by Maimonides. If one were to view the debate according to Jewish law and values, the infinite dignity of the mother always exceeds the value of the fetus in extreme situations, and abortion for financial comfort is never considered proper, which is to say someone says, you know, I don't know, I, we'd be stretched a little thin financially. If we had another child, maybe we should just keep it to one or two. Like we could handle it, but then we couldn't enjoy this or enjoy that. That in the most traditional sense, right? We're not getting to progressive Jewish views yet. We're just looking at the Jewish traditional views throughout the, throughout the centuries. That itself would not have been given weight. But there is a larger gray area in between still. Many women suffer during pregnancy, physically and emotionally. And Jewish law demands that rabbinic authorities must respond emphatically and compassionately within the boundaries of, of the Jewish tradition to address individual cases of distress. This issue is extremely sensitive and case specific with so many details. Anyone who wishes to conform their conduct according to Jewish tradition who is struggling with a particular case should of course approach their rabbi um, to talk through their particular case. Of course, as Americans, we are guided in our decision-making not only by, by Jewish tradition, but also by the terms of the secular laws that bind us. Dina de Dina. We're not permitted to, per, um, to engage in abortions that US law uh, forbids. Um, and um, uh, we are also Jewishly bound by the law of the land. As Judaism would um, push back against the idea of, uh, of a Catholic view, if it was imposed in American society, that we could not save the life of a mother um, uh, because of a pro-life position, um, in a view also where um, an abortion was, was, abortion was necessary, also in a case where um, there might have been a desirable abortion, but the law doesn't allow it, we are bound by the law of the land as well. Of course, as Americans, um, this puts us in a bind in many cases, as we'll see. Some of those laws restrict our activities, such as by imposing restrictions on the availability of abortion, while others, such as constitutional provisions, limiting the power of state and federal authorities to constrain various types of activity do just the opposite. The tension created by these two opposing legal forces is at the center of the most momentous abortion case to come before the United States Supreme Court in some time, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a challenge to a Mississippi law highly restrictive of elective abortion due to be decided within the year. The proponents of the law have explicitly asked the court to overrule Roe versus Wade, the 1973 decision in which the Supreme Court recognized a woman's constitutional right to have an abortion, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 
1992 decision reaffirming Roe. The court is now being asked to hold that a law restricting abortion availability is justified if it is supported minimally by a state interest in protecting the unborn among other interests. The question whether a fetus should be viewed um, juridically as a complete human being was addressed in Justice Harry Blackman's decision for the majority in Roe. According to Justice Blackman, who wrote, in short, the unborn have never been recognized in the law as persons in the whole sense. By the way, I'm involved in an amicus brief right now around the personhood of non-human um, people, um, in, in, not in regards to fetus, but in regards to animals in this, uh, in this legal case in New York around the, uh, the elephant happy in, in tight confinement. Um, and we're arguing for a Jewish position of, of legal personhood for non-human non, um, non persons. But anyways, back to this case. The state of Mississippi argues that the court has recognized such a right, citing a passage in Casey, which refers to a state interest in protecting the life of the fetus that may become a child. The legal status of a fetus then, and the fetus right, if any, to remain potentially viable, even while putting the life or health of the woman carrying the fetus are fraught issues. Their resolution depends, as so many difficult legal questions do, not only on the language of the precedents that relate to the questions, but also on, maybe even more so then, the moral perspective of whoever is interpreting those precedents. So friends, does the reference in Casey to the fact that fetal life might become a child mean that the Supreme Court recognizes flatly that life begins at conception? Would such a recognition be appropriate? If the court does recognize that full-blown human life begins at conception, does that mean that fetal life has as much of a right to continue uninterrupted as post-birth life? Should one adult's views on the latter question, whether they find their source in religious considerations or not, constrain the ability of another person who finds herself pregnant to access abortion services? We might have the Supreme Court's answers to these questions in the coming months, but meanwhile, we can recognize the contentiousness of these issues. Thus, Mississippi contends that the Constitution does not protect abortions right now, if it ever did, and that no good reason exists for states to be barred from restricting abortion rights. One amicus brief filed on behalf of Jewish organizations in support of the Mississippi law contends that Judaism is the original pro-life position, religion, and on that basis and on the asserted ground that abortion is generally antithetical to Torah values, they argued, champions the overruling of Roe versus Wade. Another such brief argues that the constitutional rule protecting the free exercise of religion does not support the idea that the United States Constitution generally protects a woman's right to an abortion. Merritt's brief, briefs have not yet been filed in the Supreme Court in the Dobbs case. But we know from earlier filings that the court will be asked to recognize Roe's continued precedental viability. And in only one example of a Jewish organization asking the court to uphold Roe, the National Council of Jewish Women has asked its supporters to sign a pledge which reads in part, I support abortion case access 
and an outrage by the Supreme Court's decision to hear Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, consistent with the Jewish value of kavod habriot, or respect and dignity for all human beings, I believe that everyone deserves access to the abortion care they need. So friends, to conclude here, and then I would love to hear your, <laughs> your, your views and questions on this, uh, uh, on this intense issue. Is Judaism pro-life? Yes. Is Judaism pro-choice when put in different terms, i.e. are there situations when abortion is permissible, even mandated? The answer to this is also completely yes. Whichever side of the equation of pro-choice versus pro-life, although those terms are so limiting, one comes down on, one must be mindful of the overarching teaching and emphasis of the Talmud here that both life itself and quality of life are paramount. At the same time, we should recognize that when we base our position on the question of abortion availability, on our views about Jewish values, we risk imposing our religious mores on other Jews and on still others who are not even Jewish. Okay, friends, let me pause here and I would love to hear from you. Hi, first of all, I'm just gonna say, I'm thank God I'm a Canadian because that isn't even an issue in Canada. Even the head of the conservative party knows that he has to have his anti-abortion people in caucus keep quiet, there's no way he would win. Um, other than that, I wanted to ask you, you didn't touch on things like Tay-Sachs disease in which if the child were born, it would lead a miserable, painful life until it died. And there's no way it would last beyond months. I'm sure there must be a lot of chivots on that. Could you address it, please? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, let me say a few things here. Um, um, so, Suffice it to say that what I am leaving out at the moment um, are, as much as I can, the kind of conservative political arguments and the progressive political arguments. We've all heard those a million times. I'm looking merely at kind of the Jewish tradition's engagement with this, um, although I'm very interested in those arguments as well. And, uh, and, and just a few things leading up to your question. First, I think, um, I, I, by the way, I spoke with a, a Canadian colleague this, this, uh, this, this, this week who works at the Canadian Federation, uh, actually in Toronto. And, uh, and he was telling me exactly how in America we think conservative politicians and liberal politicians, and they literally disagree on almost everything, right? And he's like, oh, the conservative and liberal politicians in Canada, there's a whole array of things they're actually on the same page about, you know, more or less you know, around things like gun violence or marijuana or, or other things, or, or and, and as you bring up here, more or less with, with abortion. Um, and it's just a reminder that countries are very close to us, are very different than us in many ways. Um, the other thing I wanna say leading up to your question is the importance of separating the personal and the societal here. One might say for themselves, in my life, I am pro-life. That is to say, if I found myself pregnant when I didn't wanna be, I would keep the child uh, in my family or put them up for adoption. Um, I would not choose an abortion. However, for other women, I affirm the right of pro-choice, right? That is not an inconsistent position. We hear that very often in the Jewish world, but for myself, I would do one thing and for the rights of women, I would do another thing. Um, and then we also see the opposite, um, which may feel more like a hypocrisy where someone says on a societal level, I am pro-life, 
But I myself had had an abortion, or my I myself got an abortion for my daughter. Um, but I will not allow women to have that that right. I'll argue against it. Um, that 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 feels like a more difficult position. But I don't want to judge either side because these are complex matters. And um, I know, like I think it was Sarah Palin, right? Was Sarah Palin the one, like Sarah Palin, like 15 years ago, who you know was staunchly pro-life, but then you know facilitated a, an abortion for her daughter. I might be mixing it up, but that's my recollection. And I, I'm not, and I'm not accusing her of anything. This is complicated. I, I, I have people in my own distant family who have made such political and personal choices. So, um, okay, but to your specific question here, there are indeed post scheme who, even though the child has a, a very low likelihood of surviving outside of the womb for very long, um, still believe the child must be born. And there are those like the Tzitz Eliezer of Waldenburg who have argued that Tay-Sachs would be a reason, a sufficient reason uh, for an abortion because the child almost inevitably um, will not uh, live beyond a few months or a few years. Um, there was a breakthrough in, in medical research in Tay-Sachs this, um, this, this, this last week, uh, which is very uh, interesting to, to read up on. Um, uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, we, we live in a miraculous time where we, we can have vaccines and we can have cures to very complicated problems. But yes, absolutely, um, that is true. Um, it is also, um, and there are other similar cases as well, but, but Tay-Sachs is kind of the quintessential case. So I'm glad you brought that up, Lauren, thank you. Who else can we hear from? Shmuley. Yes, hi, Cheryl. Hi, hi. Um, so Jewish genetic testing, to follow up with uh, what, what Lauren was approaching, I mean, when um, I had my kids, uh, the only thing they tested for was Tay-Sachs. But now there's 20 some different uh, Jewish genetic diseases. So if you're of the mind that you're gonna have the baby regardless, right. then there's no reason to be tested. Is that right? Or that's, that is an interesting question. I think that um, those who wanna get Jewish genetic uh, disease testing, I, and who are committed to keeping a child in any case. I know people who say um, that if they, if they found the child was gonna have Down syndrome, they want an abortion. I know other people who are horrified by such a view that a child with Down syndrome would be less valuable. Um, and that's a huge debate in the liberal world, for example. Um, but, 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 but going to your specific question around genetic diseases, uh, I know people who, if the result showed a very high likelihood of a match of genetic diseases, they would choose to not marry that person because they want to have many children um, because they know they are committed to keeping the child and they want to reduce that risk. Um, that happens more likely in, in more traditional families where they say love follows marriage, right? In more liberal relationships, love comes first and then comes marriage, like the song. Um, <laughs> but in more traditional world, the world, um, marriage comes first and then hopefully comes love. Um, because if you're a, a Hasidisha, if you're a Hasid, you're going to have three dates. The first, you know, you were set up, you're going to have a few dates at most, maybe, maybe no dates, maybe just a, a little wave from across Kiddush. <laughs> and then you're going to get married. Um, and in such a case, well, if we did genetic testing and we found we're likely to, there no loss to break off this engagement, what did I lose? I mean, you know, set me up with someone else. And so, yes, I think that people who want, who would have an abortion are, it's actually the opposite. 
people who are comfortable having an abortion might be less willing to have the genetic testing um, because if something is revealed, they are very comfortable quickly having an abortion. Whereas a traditional couple who is not willing to have an abortion in any case or less cases um, might be more careful with the testing. Of course, lots more to say there, but does that make sense? I think so. I mean, and, and it's interesting that um, because the way that I, I, I mean, I, I approached it, Stan and I approached it is because we, we had already been married for several years. And uh, that's when Jewish gen genetic testing really kind of started. And, um, but now I know Rabbi Kaplan, oh, uh, was, was um, uh, insistent. You reminded me when you talked about that, that when he counseled a, a couple who was getting married, the first thing they had to do was get genetic testing. Jewish genetic testing. So, um, the, you know, that's interesting too, that that's kind of part of the preparation for the wedding. I hadn't thought of it that way. Thank yes. you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's, it's really important. So I'm really glad you brought that up, the importance of doing that testing. And our friend, uh, Dr. Dr. Sherman Minkoff of Blessed Memory, who really committed so much of his life to that, and his, his, his widow, um, Andy Minkoff, um, who uh, is continuing that, that, that amazing work from your, from your own beloved synagogue. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, so I, I, I think that is really important. And um, particularly, uh, it's interesting to think about Sephardic Jews, because I don't know much about this. We think about genetic diseases passed through the Ashkenazi line um, when an Ashkenazi Jew marries an Ashkenazi Jew. But it's also true um, when, um, you know, diverse, any, any people choose to marry each other, the types of combinations that could emerge here. Now, let me bring up two other, um, um, one, one social concern that's anti-abortion um, and one that's pro. One that is anti, one that is anti-abortion is just a reminder, uh, not anti, but just a consideration for that side. A reminder that there are countless people waiting to adopt a newborn. Um, now that doesn't mean someone shouldn't have an abortion. It just means that in another factor to consider is that that is another path that there are people waiting to adopt newborns. Now, let me say something in the pro-choice side on a social concern. We are living in a time of enormous overpopulation, enormous human overpopulation, that we have more people on the planet than this planet can sustain. And the idea that we should keep every child, have larger and larger families, um, and, um, uh, and promote such population growth is completely unsustainable for the people who, who, who are alive. And that is also a pro-life, now I'm using pro-life in a different sense, pro-life consideration. The lives of the people here living on an overpopulated planet. The idea that every conception should lead to a life is also very challenging. As you know, in the Catholic view, or even in some Orthodox views, there's an opposition to birth control. There's an opposition to condom use. Um, and things like this, because even the point of conception is like life. And if that were the case, um, we would have even uh, much larger overpopulation problems. We know there's a direct correlation between education level and size of family. Uh, Ultra-Orthodox Jews have less liberal education, larger families. Of course, that's not the sole reason why it's happening. Or if you look in the global South, people who don't have access to education and, that's, and then don't have access to birth control as, as you're connected to that or have education to what's in importance, we see also an unsustainable problem. And women bear the biggest brunt of those problems because it's the men, not the women who are running away from these families. 
right? And the men are running to these cities. The women are left in villages with these children, not to mention the foster care system, which are, we're looking at single women um, where the men have run away um, and they're left alone to deal with this problem. And so um, the women's rights factor, while it is not the natural um, language of the Jewish tradition to, to talk about women's rights, is an important modern Jewish concern, women's rights. Even though the Torah doesn't talk about that, that this is, this is progress in Judaism to have such considerations um, and to understand um, that when men were always in control of such a system, um, that women bear the brunt of such decisions. And today we need to make that an egalitarian process where women and men are in part of this and women are particularly empowered in this decision-making. And thankfully in the reform and conservative and orthodox worlds, um, there are more and more women emerging as thought leaders, um, not only as medical professionals, but as, as Jewish legal thinkers who are helping to steer this in directions that balance all the concerns. Who else can we hear from here? Hi, Rabbi. Um, I have a, maybe um, see where, like, where do we draw the moral threshold line of falling from eugenics to diving into saying, you know what, I like, I really want to save um, the potential life of suffering. Like, what's that moral threshold that we kind of put as a barrier to say like, huh, maybe I'm diving too deep into eugenics and that seems a little immoral or, hey, this does seem right. Okay, awesome, awesome. Thank you for that question, um, Eddie. Um, this is a, a, really, uh, complicated, uh, a really complicated question. Um, we don't only have to give it over to Darwin and to Hitler, uh, not to equate those two by any means, even though Hitler was obviously influenced uh, by Darwinism. Uh, he was also influenced by a, a misunderstanding of Nietzsche, where Nietzsche's sister perverted Nietzsche's ideas around a, a neo-Darwin approach. But essentially this idea that we can perfect a race, an Aryan race um, that is gonna be strong and, and white and um, blue-eyed and, um, and fill in the blank of what this perfect race looks like. And what does it mean to choose an abortion based upon a perceived imperfection of a fetus? This is a, a very powerful question that Eddie's asking. And, um, uh, and again, I don't want to pass judgment on families that are making such decisions. And yet at the same time, I think we can understand why uh, Jewish values would be opposed to eugenics and would be opposed to this idea of a perfect race or the idea of a, um, only wanting a certain perfect type of fetus. Now, it's one thing to say, I'm a single mother in poverty with mental duress and to handle a child who's gonna emerge with X, Y, and Z challenges from the start, um, from the start, I don't know that I can handle that. That's something very different of an argument for this mother who says, I don't know that she can handle it. She cleans homes. She lives off $18,000 a year. She's already got two children and she's single. And now the child's gonna have major, you know, never be able to walk or be blind or really need full-time care, right? That's a very different question than someone who says, um, you know, I really want my child to have the best chances in life at being a superhuman. And I see this person is not gonna have all those advantages from the start. I don't want that child. Now, um, I can see why somebody would want to follow that conclusion. Um, and yet, 
I think this is one of the cases where we might say, is it our role to play God, so to speak? I don't like to use that phrase so often because I think it's often misused. Um, to, uh, I think people use that idea of playing God in, a, in an idea of being anti-science or anti-technology in many ways, like when it comes to uh, research. Um, but in a case like this, I do think that how are we to decide that a child with certain born with certain types of disadvantages or disabilities um, is less valuable as a human life? Eddie, does that get to your it gets your question there. Yeah, thank you so much. Eddie, um, can you share a word about um, why the Latinx community, um, at least on the adult population, tends to be so pro-life? What is it from their value system uh, that pushes in that direction? And how is that changing in, in, generation, in the different generations? Most definitely. I think that uh, it all comes from a traditional standpoint of having big families and thinking that the bigger the family that you have, uh, even if you look at it historically, it showed more that you had a, a wealthier uh, lifestyle that you were able to maintain a big family. Um, and as we looked at, at today with the colonialization of uh, specifically in my area of, of Mexican indigenous uh, natives, we saw that Catholicism really brought in and shifted the ideology to make sure that folks really followed through that preservation of life and um, really the, the control of, of intimacy and um, afterwards. So physically, a lot of, uh, in my case, Hispanic uh, Mexicans became very conservative when it came to um, the, uh, the topic of abortion. And uh, what I see right now is that it's, it's really evolving as, as there is a, a pretty big movement right now in, in Mexico to shift the conversation. Uh, and it's, it's getting a lot of backlash, but it's looking at really um, standing up for, for women's rights uh, more than actually the, the conversation about uh, abortion. Great, awesome, thank you for that. And it's also friends important to remind us also that this is um, that the women's rights are not only the rights to the, the, uh, framed in the conversation as the right to choose, but also as women's rights to public health access. This is also a public health issue. Important to remember. Okay, who else can we hear from here? I want to throw out one other thing. Oh, just before Steve, I want to throw out one other thing which is the, from the philosophical perspective of utilitarianism. Utilitarians, as you know, believe in maximizing pleasure and minimizing suffering. And the question that emerges in the utilitarian world is not, is a fetus a life, but does a fetus suffer? And if a fetus suffers, then there's a question about our moral responsibility to reduce that suffering or to prevent suffering. Okay, Steve, over to you. Okay, uh, thank you, Shmuley. Um, th this is not entirely apropos, but you've used the phrase Jewish law a couple of times today, more than a couple. Uh, and I just wanted to know, what, what is the origin or what are the origins of Jewish law? And is Jewish law constantly being reformulated? Awesome question, Steve. Thank you so much for that. Okay, so um, a few things about that. Firstly, the reason I use that, that framework more in this session than usual is because many of our debates today are not um, framed traditionally as legal matters. 
when we talk about Israel, the Israeli conflict, when we talk about today issues around gun rights or gun control. These are not framed as legal matters throughout our tradition. This is one of those issues that has attention framed through, not traditionally through a values prism, but particularly through a, a legal prism, which is why I embrace that approach here. Now, the origins of Jewish law um, uh, is a complicated question. And I think that what we can say is that the Torah itself has rules. It's hard to call it a legal system because there were no lawyers yet. In this case, lawyers would be called rabbis. And thus, Jew Jewish law really emerges as a legal system in the rabbinic era, which is the year 70 CE, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, 1900 years ago, um, uh, I guess uh, 1950 years ago, uh, uh, well, a little more, um, but you get the point. Um, when the temple is destroyed and we move from priestly Judaism to sage Judaism, to Talmudic Judaism. And there they develop Jewish law in Yavne and in Babylonia and in Jerusalem um, for hundreds of years. And they put in place a legal process to look at these questions. And why is it a legal process? Because the Jews were powerless. The Jews did not have sovereignty. They did not have a state where there could be law like Romans did or Greeks did. They had, um, they were, um, had non-citizen rights and all they had was kind of personal or and communal law called halakha. And that in the Talmud is debated and it evolves and it continues to evolve to the medieval times through Ramban and through Rambam. And then, um, it, you know, 500 years later, fast forward to the Shulchan Aruch and the Aruch HaShulchan, and then into Israel, to contemporary Israel, contemporary America, where it continues to evolve. The reform movement denounced um, a commitment to halakha. The conservative movement kept in place a commitment to halakha um, and takes a fundamentally different philosophical approach to halakha than the Orthodox world, but kept in place a commitment to that. There's still a Jewish law and standards committee at JTS and in the, uh, in the rabbinical assembly world. Um, there, there's, there's a pretty large gap between the rabbinic establishment and the lay community of the capital C conservative world, where the capital C conservative world is largely not engaged in Jewish legal thinking, but the rabbinic world is, at least at the academies. And then modern orthodoxy has very different processes and authorities than the ultra-orthodox world. Um, and then of course, there's the Hasidic world that has its own approach. And so it continues to evolve, even those in the traditionalist world who argue it doesn't evolve, most certainly it continues to evolve there as well. It is a living process, a Torah Chaim, a living Torah that with new medical findings, new developments, new interpretations continues to evolve. So the other way to describe Jewish law would be to, to translate halakha not as law, but as progress. Halakha means walking forward. It means a pathway to walk. It means how does a Jew walk in the world? I've made the case I would love the reform movement to embrace their own halakhic process and not have to and do that in a different way, the conservative Jews and Orthodox Jews, but to say halakha is what we mean by um, how a Jew should walk in the world. Um, what are our moral responsibilities? What are our spiritual commitments? 
And how do we do that in a way that brings us together, enables Jewish continuity, and enables us to progress? Steve, is that, I know that's kind of like 2,000 years in like one minute. Was that at all helpful or no? Okay, he's still on mute, so I'll assume it was not helpful, um, but maybe it was. No, it was perfect, <laughs> absolutely perfect. Okay, great. You know, it would be a similar, very similar thing in many ways to how we talk about American law. American law has an origin, it was debated, um, and there's a constitution and bill of rights, and, um, and then we have amendments, and then we have precedents, and is American law like locked away from the founders of the framers of the constitution? Of course not. It's constantly being debated and evolved and some take an originalist approach and some take a consequentialist approach and American law is very alive. And yet most Americans want there to be continuity in American law. Most people, uh, liberal and conservative jurists and, and advocates don't say, I don't care what the past was, here's what's the, the ethical thing and that's what the law should be. Right? Generally, they argue in the name of legal continuity what the law should be today. That's what virtually everyone does, that there is a value of legal continuity and that law be slow moving. People want law to be slow moving. Law itself is something very different than personal choice. Law is something that has to have a very intense deliberative process to maintain societal order. Okay, friends, who's next? Um. A quick question. Where is Israeli law on the issue? Okay. Um, okay. Good question. So Israeli law um, in um, comparison to American law is, is very different. Um, uh, but it's really, there's so much to say about that, but I'll, I, and it's hard to say too much right now. Um, but the societies are so different. Um, in so many ways that, oh, wait a minute, do you, oh, I'm sorry, do you mean Israeli religious halakha? Or do you mean Israeli government law? Oh, okay, great, great. I actually don't feel prepared to answer the current nuances on that. I, I want to punt on that one. Um, I have read many things on it, but since I have read those things, there may have been changes and I don't want to give the wrong information. So I encourage folks to read up on that. And maybe you can share a link or share your findings next week. Um, but I don't want to talk about something I don't I don't know enough about. I'm sorry. Yeah. Someone else? Just um, if Michael is asking about abortion in Israel, yeah. it's it's allowed. Um, you just you have to appear before a medical committee. And uh, I believe there's clinics as well as hospitals. So it's certainly much, much more liberal than the US. Yeah, so no doubt there are many cases you can do it. And what those parameters are, I can't quote off the top of my head. Yeah, thank you, Lauren, for that. Someone else? What else comes to mind for you here? One of the interesting questions that emerges is, how do we translate our contemporary concern with rights into the Jewish language that did not have a language of rights, right? Jewish tradition does not ever, does not use the language of rights. It uses the language of duty, 
of obligation. Now, in some ways, that's more powerful because if there's a right, who is obligated to maintain that right? It's completely unclear. I can argue human right to education, human right to health, human right to, to a, a job, human right to a union, but who, who is there to defend that? I can argue any right I want, really. I can say anything I want that seems good, but if there, who's, who is obligated to ensure that? Is it my neighbor? Is it the government? Is it the community? Is it the corporation? Right? Is it God? I mean, I mean, who is it? The, is it the UN? Is it some universal collective? Some you know global collective? Um, but when you talk about an obligation, an obligation and mitzvah is very clear about who has to do what. And so that said, we still want to be a part of the human rights discourse today. We talk about LGBTQ rights. We talk about women's rights. We talk about immigrant rights. And yet we want to build a bridge between Jewish discourse and that rights discourse. So I, I don't intend to answer that right now, but I do just wanna raise that question of how do we bring our Jewish values and tradition into that conversation about rights today, given that we value rights naturally as human beings of conscience, and yet it is a foreign language to our tradition. Anyone else want to jump in before we conclude? Yeah, one more one more thought here, Rabbi. Yeah. So, what do you what do you say to when folks like use that unapologetic statement saying that like Judaism is absolutely pro-choice? When in reality, what we've been learning here is that it while there is is a yes and like what do you say to those folks? So um, that's a great question, Eddie. So. Like all of these debates, I think I, I am not overly critical of cherry picking Judaism. It's not what I want to be a part of, but everybody does it. If you are conservatively conservative um, politically, you can cherry pick Judaism to construct the arguments that you want to argue for. Find a source here, find a source there. If you are liberal um, politically, you can cherry pick Judaism to make your case for virtually anything as well. I believe, and this is what we're trying to do in this debate series, that following the tradition of Hillel, that we should quote the fullness of the tradition and then argue our side based on our sources. That is to say, honor the richness of Judaism and yet still make a morally robust and forceful argument for the side of Judaism we want to embrace. That's what the sages did. The sages acknowledged the complexity and then made their arguments, picking one side. They picked the side. We don't say the sages cherry-picked because they were honest. Now, that doesn't mean in a rally or in a petition, you have to acknowledge the opposing side of your tradition fully, right? Um, uh, but giving a head nod to it is not only strategically wise, it's also ethical to say, as a Jew, I acknowledge that there is a concern for the rights of a fetus. And yet my tradition also pushes me in the direction of being pro-choice. What I don't like is when people say, Judaism is pro-life. Judaism is pro-choice. No, it's not. Like, have you studied anything in the tradition? Like, you can say, as a Jew, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-life. You can say, as a Jew, my values lead me toward this position. But there is no such thing as Judaism is equated with, with this position. And so um, I, I, can, I can understand 
why Jews would participate in this debate on a political level, as I myself do. And I can understand why Jews would bring Jewish wisdom into that conversation. And yet, I really think as Jews, what we have to contribute is not only leveraging our power and our resources, but, but leveraging the nuance of our tradition. And I think that brings us to a more nuanced and robust place in what we can offer in these debates, in these debates, to be able to say, I am a Jew and my tradition values the, um, values the fetus, values the fetus. And as a Jew, my tradition has also made clear that I must choose the life of a mother of a fetus and da 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 da, right? To fill in the blank, right? As opposed to just having a bumper sticker, you know, Judaism is pro-life, pro Judaism is pro-choice. I think it's a huge distortion. And so um, I understand why people would do that because they never had a Jewish education or they reject Judaism, but they still want to use it in a way that's going to be helpful to them and what they want to advocate for. But I do think we can do better in how we, in how we engage in advocacy. Um, Eddie, what do you think of that? Yeah. So, um, um, so friends, there is, there are, of course, and, and we'll conclude with this, there are, of course, some boundaries. I, I don't want to be sound like a relativist where I'm saying in every debate, we want to give a nod to the other side, right? Like there are some debates where one side is purely evil. I'm not so many debates, thankfully. But one side could be described as purely evil and like antithetical to Judaism at its core. Like, um, I'm sure we could think of some examples here. Um, let's say like terrorism, like terrorism, um, like any any form of of targeting innocent people as a form of terrorist activity to achieve a political agenda would be considered a form of evil, right? Um, there, you know, we can understand terrorism, we can contextualize it, whatever the case is. But there's no Jewish case to defend. Right, the the um, the, um, the the intentional targeting of of innocent people. Um, so, um, uh, anyways, so friends, we'll, we'll leave it at this. We look forward to seeing you next week for debate number nineteen. Just a little bit of a um, a heads up into that topic um, of debate nineteen. We will be discussing Israel versus the diaspora. Israel versus the diaspora. Is Judaism Israel-centric or is Israel diaspora-centric? What is the center of Jewish life? It's Rosh Hashanah next Tuesday. Two oh, weeks, not two, weeks. Weeks. two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. Oh, no, no, most, read Pam's note on the side. Thank you. September 14th, yeah. And that actually will be our only meeting in September due to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Simchat Torah. And then we'll be back to our normal schedule. Everyone wishing you a Shana Tova, a healthy, good year. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.